Hi, I'm Dr. David Clay. Thanks for joining with us today on Word. On our last podcast, we chose a subject that I thought would be uh, probably relevant to everyone. Statistically speaking, most everyone knows somebody who has a substance abuse, misuse, dependence. We call it substance-related and addictive disorders, according to the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Why I thought that might be a good topic, again, besides the fact that we all know someone or likely to know someone who has either used substances, misused substances, gotten to the point where they've had the kind of difficulties that it takes to qualify to meet the criterion of having a substance disorder, related disorder, use-related disorder, addictive disorder, is that in the United States in 2017, a national survey estimated or found out, didn't estimate, found out that somewhere around 19.7 million adult Americans, that would be age 12 years or older, not only had, again, what we call substance-related and addictive disorder, but in addition to that, that disorder included specifically 74% having alcohol-related problems. Now, of course, not all individuals are going to have substance-related addictive disorders uh, particularly when it comes to chemicals or substances that are hard to get a hold of. Uh, we call them illegal or illicit drugs. But when you're talking about something that's quite legal, and then you combine it with the kind of numbers that this survey uh, uncovered or uh, identified, uh, where you could go and purchase it, uh, as long as you were over uh, the age of 18, 21, you could purchase it legally, that kind of gets us back to my initial point. Most likely, everyone who is listening to me at this very moment either has or knows somebody who has possibly used alcohol, and then with that, knows or has used some sort of substance. Now, now most of the substances, of course, that get us in trouble, too, by this point in time, are considered illicit or illegal, if only because they have such great potential to cause us trouble. And that basically is how you know whether or not, one, you've misused a substance, it gets you in trouble, and secondly, whether or not you may have some sort of a uh, dependency upon that substance, because despite the trouble you get into, and uh, most often the consequences are uh, progressively worse and worse over the course of the disorder as it, it, it the, the use of the substance, the misuse of the substances becomes worse or the substance becomes worse, the consequences worsen. So we're not just talking about some minor sort of uh, trouble. <laughs> it turns out to be uh, oftentimes very serious, even to the point of death, trouble. Uh, and with that, you begin to understand. Uh, if you have a disorder, 
if you're addictive, you're not only getting into trouble, you're creating a risk of or participating in or complicit to a risk of the ultimate, most of us would say, trouble in this world, and that is actually life and limb, threat of death, harming not only self, but someone else to the point of taking their life. Now, as far as I'm uh, still aware, that's probably or possibly one of the worst possible or potential crimes, actions, uh, something that we could do against somebody else uh, that we know of. So far, death is not legal, and uh, most people do not see it as ethical, morally correct. You get the point. But when you look at it that way, you also have to take into consideration that of those drugs that are most commonly seen as the most illicit or illegal because of their addictive potential, you're going to find, number one, heroin, which is an opiate or put in the category an opioid. You're going to find cocaine. And then you're also going to find another very, very common substance, nicotine. Again, there's more restrictions than ever before on nicotine, and nicotine particularly in the form of smoking. And again, why? Why are there so many restrictions? Why is it controlled or attempted? Uh, attempts are made to control it to such an extent or degree because it has death attached to it. Not only does nicotine, or would nicotine then be part of it, but the way that people smoke... Cigarettes themselves cause people to die. But the reason people smoke cigarettes or other substances such as vaping is because they are addicted. And what are they addicted to, particularly with cigarettes? It's the nicotine. Now, generally in and of itself, nicotine is an addictive substance, but it is not necessarily a very lethal substance. But once again, we're talking about addictions and then within that, we have to look at what is misuse, which would, again, be something that creates trouble, versus, or and with that, not versus, but additional to that, then if it causes trouble, can you stop it? And if you can't, then that's when it becomes addictive or one becomes dependent upon it. Now, interestingly enough, on that top 10 list, though, is a substance that is also very common though it is probably not as legal as would be either nicotine or alcohol, and that would be marijuana or cannabis. And even in those states where it is yet to be legalized, and certainly on a federal level, there is so much uh, to be said between the various states that, that otherwise have legalized it, but on a federal level, the, the disparity is it's not. So the argument of whether to legalize or not is more than just simply a matter of opinion. Because it lands on this list of top 10, it is an addictive substance. Now, whether or not it is a safe substance or the way that individuals take in cannabis to get the effect is safe, then becomes collateral. It has to, as much as those two things may be tied together or correlated, and as much those two things may go through uh, a means of, of uh, getting it into your body, 
that has the potential for danger, uh, then it could or could not be uh, something that should or should not remain illicit, illegal, controlled. Uh, The notion, too, that uh, cannabis itself, even on a physiological level, over a particularly long period of time, may actually have uh, such adverse health effects that though it may not kill you, it may seriously compromise your body's ability to function. Uh, With that, have uh, what we discussed on the last podcast, other related conditions secondary to the use of the substance, uh, which would then create problems, more problems, bigger problems. Uh, For instance, there may be some physiological, uh, certain physiological effects of cannabis for particular populations of individuals who use, specifically teenagers, that may compromise their ability for the ability of their brain to not only develop normally, but more than physiological or biological development, it can include psychological development. In addition to that, it is still a problem to become so intoxicated with cannabis, which we do know diminishes our reaction times as well as probably interferes with our ability to make good decisions, hence driving stoned would be a bad decision, where you have the same problem as you do with alcohol. There is a driving under the influence uh, where you might wreck your vehicle, whatever it may be. You might wreck somebody else's vehicle. You might hit a pedestrian who is crossing the street. There's all sorts of potential lethality attached to that. That, too, has to go into consideration of whether or not it remains a controlled substance. And though everybody would promise never to drive under the influence, we know that really doesn't work. How? Because human behavior, as it bears itself out when it comes to such things, again, as alcohol or even tobacco, nicotine, People, when addicted, part of the definition is they can't stop. And it creates a conundrum of sorts. Why we're going into all this detail, though, especially last podcast where I discussed what the criterion were or how to look at that in a general sort of way to determine whether or not you might be addicted to something, a substance particularly, is because, one, you might be addicted to a substance. And with that, there is a progression, progressive, again, element from just misuse or abuse all the way to then dependence. And as we've said, even in today's podcast, over that same continuum, almost parallel with uh, the degree to which somebody is going from, moving from simply abuse to uh, dependence, so too are the problems that are associated with them. And if you then factor in chronicity or an individual uh, using a substance over a long period of time, then it also increases greatly the risks if there are going to be physiological effects, that those physiological effects are going to eventually have an impact that could compromise. Again, 
the human body, even on a just unique person-by-person basis, to the extent they don't live, that their body can't function. More so, again, they are at risk of hurting somebody else when in an intoxicated state. So, it seems really important, then, that we know if we might be one of those individuals, and even if we may not be, it seems equally important, then, that, as I said today, we may know somebody who is, and it may become a matter because of the closeness or proximity we are to that individual that we may have to get involved in some means some, to some degree to keep them from hurting themselves and others. That's why we go to all of this trouble of not only establishing what is pathology or sickness, as with the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but also treating it, coming up with plans and strategies and actions to treat it. Why? Because we still rever life, revere, is another way to pronounce that, life. And that's what I was also trying to uh, mention a moment ago, was I think we still consider death to be a bad thing. Who knows? Probably some circles, some individuals, some social circles or networks where death probably isn't. But as far as sort of a natural measure of adaptability, uh, the highest standard of life, life is the highest standard of life. Anything less is death or at least movement toward death. I, I know this may sound overly simplistic, but sometimes in discussions like this, you have to get to the bottom line. If it kills you, we probably, most of us, would probably still consider it to be bad. If it sustains life or promotes life, it's good. Now, again, you could come up with all sort of theological, philosophical sort of arguments to even death being a good thing. But in an immediate sort of natural existence sort of way, I think our standard, certainly on word, is going to be let's have more life, and not only life, but not only more life, but not only more life, but good life. One where we're pain-free as much as possible. One where we don't inflict pain on others. One where we don't kill ourselves. One where we do not end up killing other people. So, we could run the list at this particular point because I think I've established the basis for the discussion. We could run the list of all the substances, and we mentioned those last podcast, that's included in the Diagnostic Manual, APA, DSM, American Psychiatric Association, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, that are in the category of potential abuse or misuse or addictive. Uh, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) You might enjoy that. Maybe someday on another podcast we'll do that. Or maybe as another substance kind of takes the forefront, we may have to go into that particular category and say, well, this is where you put this substance, this sort of new thing that's out there. You have to put it in this category and Basically, this is, this is exactly then, or this is precisely then, what we mean by that, and, and then kind of look at it and say, well, how do we stop it? But until something new comes up, I'm going to stick with the top three, and I'm going to include, just for the sake of a good argument, uh, 
the number 10 spot. Again, the first three, heroin, cocaine, and marijuana. And in the 10 spot is cannabis uh, or cocaine and nicotine. And in the 10 spot is uh, marijuana or cannabis. So let's take a look then at what the DSM says about opioid-related disorders. Now, that wasn't on my top three, right? It was, but again, it's under the category, heroin is under the category of opioid. So being heroin is the number one on the list, then we're going to start with opioid-related disorders. As much as, again, in last podcast, in the last podcast, we talked about how to diagnose, or at least a criterion. I'm going to run that list again when it comes to opioids, uh, because they're pretty consistent, and that's why I spoke of the more general terms in an, that introductory sort of way last time, because you're going to find them in every category of disorder. And, and within the general category, as it is with heroin, you're going to find multiple opiates or opioids. Um, fentanyl is an opiate. Uh, heroin, uh, even though fentanyl is synthetic, it still falls in that category. Synthetic mean, meaning that it's man-made. It's not natural. Uh, you don't have to, to, to uh, somehow extract that or cultivate that from a plant and extract that and, and such, process that in that sort of way. It doesn't naturally exist in our world. We've made it ourselves, humans. Um, but it's still an opiate, an opioid. And then there's all sorts of variations of that, as you might well imagine. Uh, some of those are legitimately medications that people uh, get illegally, uh, acquire illegally and illicitly. Uh, some of those are in that way cooked up in laboratories. Uh, again, heroin, you don't have to necessarily go and, and manufacture that at a pharmaceutical laboratory uh, or any other kind of, uh, of a similar kind of laboratory. Pharmaceutical grade is what we call it. Uh, but at the same time, though, uh, it is something that does still have to be processed. Somebody has to process it. Uh, of these other categories, as we might get into them, I'll give you some other examples, too, of the various substances that fit into that category. But again, we're just going to try to run these basic four. So here we go. Opioid use disorder. It begins with a problematic pattern of opioid use. Herein, or at this particular, uh, in this particular discussion, we're talking about heroin that leads to clinically significant impairment or distress. They put the clinical in front of it because it is a matter of treatment, medical necessity. Why? Because, again, it has not only problems, but it has both physiological problems associated with it, as well as, because we're talking psychiatric or psychological or counseling-related sort of issues, uh, particularly on word, it has the potential to be clinically significant with psychological or psychotherapeutic or uh, clinical in the sense of counseling or, or social work-related, psychiatric in the sense of the counseling part, conditions, difficulties. And again, the word significant means it's not just 
a small problem, it's a larger one, and it's recognizable in that sense that it stands out against the context of everything else, normal, either individually, human race, society, culture. And with that, a certain degree of distress. It says, or distress, in the definition, I would probably say, and distress. It's hard to imagine something that is clinically significant of the very variety of impairment that doesn't have some sort of distress attached to it. But supposing the substance itself removes the feeling of pain, maybe you could argue that. There is also this thing called denial. Psychologically, people, even if in pain, can deny it. Ah, I'm not feeling any pain. Ah, this hasn't caused me any problems. No, you're wrong. Uh, everything's fine. No, and and you, again, you get the, the point. Uh, and it has to then also be demonstrated by two. And I'm getting into numbers because there's 11 that potentially could demonstrate it. You only have to have two of these for that diagnosis of opioid use disorder, otherwise, a.k.a. abuse and or dependence to be diagnosed. So here we go again. Number one, the opiates, the opiate or opiates are taken in larger amounts or over a longer period of time than was intended. Number one. Number two, there is a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control opioid use. Number three, a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain the opioid, use the opioid, or recover from its effects. Number four, craving. And what do I mean by craving? If you're an opioid disorder, if you're someone who has used opiates to the point of disorder, you're going to know exactly what craving is. But craving is a strong desire or urge to use opioids. It's sort of like craving food. But if you talk to an opioid use disorder patient, they're going to tell you that it is worse than, oh, I'm craving pizza, or I'm craving salt, or whatever it might be that you want. Uh, it is not only I want it, it is not only I want it, but more so than ever anything else, I need it. I can't live without it. Now, is craving psychological? It could be, right? Because, again, we're talking about physiological, medical, as well as psychological when we talk about clinical significance or impairment. But when you crave something psychologically, you can get it into your head so much that you want it that until you have it, you think you're going to die. Now, what, again, does death have to do with it? Because really, and, and I, I would want to make this point very clear, everything in life comes down to that, living or dying. 
You say, well, that's kind of ridiculous. It's all relative. Yes, you can make that argument that it's all relative. And as I said before, you can make the argument that death itself is a good thing. However, if the, all we have empirically is this life, right now that's all we can see, taste, touch, feel, measure, uh, uh, identify in a factual sort of way, when it's over, folks, it's over. That is non-existence. Now, you can imagine whatever you might want about what that is like after you die. And I have my own personal opinions about that. But in a very practical, again, pragmatic, empirical discussion, for the sake of objectivity, the only thing that we really can measure as good or bad is life or death. But if you start there, and yes, it's binary, I know. It's one way or the other, I know. But if you start there, then whatever you construct in terms of a theory on life, your own personal paradigm, your own personal opinion about what life should or shouldn't be, if you start with that premise, then all the subsequent discussions, all the subsequent discussions and therein decisions that need to be made about what to do, not to do, purpose, meaning, all comes back to, does it bring more life? If it does, it's adaptive. If it kills you, it's probably not. I only say probably because, again, it's going to be hard to argue, well, have you ever seen the afterlife or life after death? Personally, I've never seen it. I do believe there are a possibility that somebody might or could in some way, communicate what that's like. But for the sake of this argument, for today's program, for the discussion in the, in the context of what we are discussing and how we're discussing it empirically, I'm an idiot if I try to sell you on any notions besides the basic facts, right? And you have to interpret them, right? By the way, this is how you have to address addicts because they are masters at rationalization. Again, I used the concept or introduced the concept of denial, used the term denial earlier. They are not above or beyond lying repeatedly to get what they want. They lie so much to other people. More so, though, they are quite guilty of self-deception lying to themselves. They have lost that fundamental kind of foundational set point. And again, my argument is it's in you biologically to live. That is the purpose. That is the reason you have a homeostatic response. That is the reason there's a pleasure centers. We talked about that last podcast. The reward, I should call it, that we use the, the, the word reward. It's the same thing, the hedonic system, pleasure, pain. But the reward system is there. It promotes not death. It promotes life. Don't move too far off that point or you'll get into the weeds. And if you get into the weeds, you'll get lost. And if you get lost 
then when it is all said and done, and should there be an afterlife, and should somebody come along to testify of it or to it, you'll have probably a better appreciation for why it's there than you do at this particular moment, if you're not quite to that point yet. Now, that, I know, presumes that most of my listeners aren't at that stage of their life, and even if they are chronologically age-related, maybe it's just physiologically, maybe you're suffering some sort of condition, physical, that it has an imminence about it, that there's only so much time left in your life. But when you get to that point, and we may talk about this on another episode of Word. But when you get there, um, you might see it a bit differently. But that's all I'm going to say today about that. So cravings are a strong desire urge to use opioids. You're not going to die, necessarily. You just think you are. But if you didn't think you were, you might be less likely to go ahead and cave in and use them. So it's all a matter of trying to negotiate as much with the psychological it is as it is the physiological. Now, of course, the cravings are also tied to tolerance on a physiological level, which means the body is going to go through severe withdrawal. Now, fortunately, on opiates, that does not necessarily mean it's going to kill you. Again, it just makes you think you're going to die. If we were to put alcohol, and we might, I may add another category. We might talk about alcohol. But alcohol is definitely a substance, though, sedative hypnotics, because they work in the same way as alcohol does. Alcohol, there is such a tolerance that your body has. If you up and stop it, you run the risk of convulsions, seizures, because your body has grown so used to the alcohol or the substance in your system it and develop such a tolerance so you can continue to function that if you just pull that out of your system by going cold turkey, you can die of a convulsion, a seizure. Now, with alcohol too, and with opiates as well, you can take so much of it that it will kill you. But in the context of cravings, most individuals have already gotten to the point of some withdrawal, so they're not really in an intoxication mode or phase at that time. So as with the alcohol, opiates are probably as much they could eventually cause your body respiratory arrest, your brain to stop functioning. We're really only talking about, at this point with cravings, when you're still in your own head. You have some conscious awareness, you're just feeling horrible and like you're going to die. Number five, recurrent opioid use resulting or results in a failure to fulfill major role obligations. Had a great discussion yesterday with a patient. Does not like labels. Believes that labels are, again, sort of a relic of a binary system. It's somebody's opinion. It really doesn't attach to facts. Uh, I, I... have an argument against that necessarily in the sense that he can believe what he wants to believe and uh, probably can get away with that because there's obviously a lot of choices, right? Diversity. But when we call or talk about things such as fulfill major role obligations, despite maybe your disdain for labels, 
maybe for the sake of not again being binary, maybe because you don't like somebody being prejudiced against you, maybe you just are such the creative soul that you just want everything to be different and unique, and you have to be unique and different, and that's really what adds all the joy to life. And again, who am I to argue with that except on this premise Until we get to the point where everybody can be a king and have it their way, we have to live with some order lest we all, uh, I guess, digress into chaos. There must be roles that we all fulfill. Not everybody can be king, at least not at all times. Now, maybe you say, well, you can be king today and I'll be king tomorrow. Okay, but for today... You know, I may be king, but tomorrow I've got to be a servant. And then what if our days coincide? What if I run into somebody who else is king for the day? Uh, how do we figure that out? Uh, and again, I don't want to over-dramatize it or I don't want to minimalize it by making it sort of so basic that it seems kind of irrelevant. But it, the point is, we have to work together. I think it's evolutionarily been established, evolutionarily to our benefit, to work together. That is probably why we're at the top of the food chain. That is probably why if you believe in Darwin at all, survival of the fittest went to humans as being the highest order in a natural regard. Yes, I love animals, and I don't want to kill them, and and I don't want to kill the planet. Uh, I like the moon, well, the moon's not on the planet. I like the way the moon is on our planet, that I can look up in the sky at night and see it in the stars. It's all part of my, uh, I guess, uh, phenomenological, my, my uh, uh, sort of egocentric perspective on the universe. I like looking up in the sky and seeing the moon every night. If we destroy the planet, I would not have the view, Right? I like being able to go outside and get a breath of fresh air. I like hearing birds and crickets and all those other things. What I'm saying, though, is just that. We're part of an ecosystem. We all have a role to play. You may want to fly in a jet plane, but you can't tell me I can't, and we still are equal. It doesn't work that way. So if you're an environmentalist and you fly in jet planes, it seems a little hypocritical to me that you would look at me and say, well, you can't do that because I'm taking up all of that carbon, whatever, whatever, on my credit. Oh, yeah, I'll pay for it. Well, true, but you still destroy the planet with it. If we're going to do this, we need to do it fairly. But that's the point. The only way to get to fair or equitable is through evolution or some variant of that. It's all through natural selection, or some variant of that. It's how we all are right to fit together. Overpopulation is going to kill the earth. It's not just carbon emissions. Humans have to at some point die, or the ecosystem is thrown so out of whack that all the other parts can't function, and we're just as dependent upon them as we are uh, basically whatever it is that makes us think we have a right to proliferate to the extent we destroy the earth, overpopulate. Whether or not that's a good argument or not, the notion is, though, that somewhere along the way, we all have to fulfill a role. We all fit into a system. 
And we all have to consider the system, ecosystem, social system, family system, whatever the system, systemically, as far superior to the individual. But when the individual and the individual's desires and needs, especially if they're out of alignment with reality, don't fit in very well to the point where we create utter disorder and chaos, it's not going to work. We're still going to die. Self-preservation is maladaptive. You can't do that. So, sell me on socialism, I suppose. I am not a socialist, by the way. I think that you can try to manage that, but there's always going to be somebody who's on top. And with that, I'd prefer that we just allow the natural sort of effect. Again, whether you call it evolution, whether you call it the natural selection, whatever you call it. Maybe you just say, we all should be kind enough to die for each other. That would work, right? But the idea, though, is I'd prefer that rather than making somebody not only king for a day, but king forever. Because I know human nature. And that is to be addictive. And that's, again, part of why we're having this discussion. I don't want to turn it all over to them. I know they're going to misuse it. And in that, they're going to do all these things that make it impossible for them to be objective, no matter how hard they may or may not try. So, we recognize then some sort of problem with the substance when it kind of screws the order of things up. When people are counting on you to go out and be able to make a living or at least do your part to contribute to life on earth and you're not doing that, even if it's in a social context more than it is a global context, you're not fulfilling your role, your part. But don't be a hypocrite and say, well, I can do that, but you can't do that. Be respectful of the fact that everybody has a role to fulfill. Now, again, I might be okay with saying we'll switch off. But at the same time, who gets to make that decision? And what if we both disagree? And what if the judge that is set before us to make that decision on our behalf is corrupt himself or herself? And what if with that, the government itself is corrupt? Uh, You know, there are a lot, I say you know, you probably do, There's many individuals right now that believe when it comes to heroin and opiates that really what created this whole opiate problem is a bunch of that kind of thinking. The American Medical Association got in cahoots with the federal government when the federal government said that rather than treating heroin, we'll just give them methadone back in the 60s. And with that, okay, we'll write the scripts. It's not unethical to write scripts for heroin, for heroin addicts who we know are disordered to begin with. And then the pharmaceutical companies get involved in that. And then somewhere along the way, the pharmaceutical companies then decide, well, we're having good profits now, so let's just make more. Let's go to the AMA who already has, has established a precedence of cooperating and writing these scripts And we'll go to the government and say, well, you guys have already done this, so this is no different. Just when it comes to pain, just give people as much as they want. Now, I don't know if they misrepresented the facts. I don't know if their studies were flawed. All I know was, or is, was historically and continues to be, and now is, because we won't do it anymore, you can't keep writing pain pills for people. 
because opiates are incredibly addictive. Why are they addictive? Because your body develops incredible tolerance. What does that mean? At some point, what you're taking now stops working because your body tolerates it so well that it reestablishes a pain threshold neurologically. And with that, you have to have more. And then there needs to be more potent or powerful opiates that are manufactured. And then what you have is you have a runaway locomotive that is otherwise going to hit the station. I don't know if they do that anymore. I guess trains still do uh, run off the tracks. But the, but the idea is, though, somewhere somebody has to decide. You have to understand the basic premise here. The premise being nobody can be so much in charge of everything that they can control both sides of that. And what do I mean by that? The same individuals who wrote the pain pills ended up for a period of time also writing the medications that are necessary to get them off people, off pain pills. Now, if that isn't a conflict of interest, I'm not sure what is. Now, it's not like that now. Go ask anybody who needs pain medication how difficult it is to get that. You can't get that, even if legitimately you need that. So they've gone from, again, one extreme to the other. And you'll not find any pain management doctor writing medication-assist treatment medications, such as methadone or suboxone to help opiates, opiate addicts, to work their way off of that opiate. And we'll talk in more detail in a future podcast about that, the treatment aspects of that. They've made corrections, but what a roller coaster ride we've been on since 19, I don't know, 60, we'll say in the 60s, all the way up through to today. Why? Because the people that controlled the system became corrupt. Government's the same way. Whether or not I, it's a conspiracy theory or I'm paranoid, I don't think so. It has been such the eye-opener to me, though, how much corruption there is and collusion there is in government to the point where we lose the point. It's about preservation of order, not function. And that's why I go back to life and death. If you're not careful, you'll start to see everything as preservation of what we have. And, of course, those that have are really not in the category of those that don't have. And you can, again, in some sort of a, a um, kind of an opposite uh, sweeping sort of change, go to the other side and say, well, take it all away from them. But when you do that, special interests, uh, affirmative action plans, whatever you call them, you're going to be empowering another group to take over. Why do we want to do that? We should just try to figure out how to treat the problem. Nobody can be king for a day. Let natural selection, or at least as much as possible, the natural order of things to help us to understand process itself, empiricism itself, science itself, not science corrupted or coerced. Uh, that's not the word. Uh, where somebody takes it and uses it to their advantage and distorts it, uses it for the purposes of coercion, that's not what it should be. We should all be bound to science, if anybody's bound to science, not just because it, you can take it and twist it and use it to your advantage in your argument. We should let science stand for what it is, empiricism, that is. 
But the same thing with drugs and drug addicts. If they can't get down to what they are, admit it, acknowledge it, they're not going to get better. Co-op. That's what uh, the word, rather than coerce. So, major role obligations are not fulfilled. And these are found in the general categories. Again, this is arguable as well. Of work, school, and home. Well, what if you don't work? Well, does it apply to you? Yes, it still does, but that's traditionally where role obligations are fulfilled, at least a good portion of most people's lives still. School. I don't go to school. I think school is useless. I think education is useless. Who needs school? Why do we do school? Uh, Because it not only is an obligation where you learn the sense of obligation from it, going there, doing something, getting something in return. Everybody sees value. Part of the problem with this pushback on higher education or higher education pushing back on independent thinking uh, or more process-oriented, as would be independent, not codependent, that's what I'm trying to capture here. We talked about that in the last podcast. Go back and listen to it if you, if you uh, didn't listen to it or you did listen to it and forgotten, or if you haven't listened, go and listen to it. But for the sake of some independence, there has to be a return on it. But if you go to school and you pay all this money and you get a degree and you still can't get a job and you still can't get any respect, there's a problem. The roles aren't working. There's disorder and chaos forming. We should see it. And the same thing at home. When you go about destroying all the major sort of models for what a family looks like, even if it's for the sake of diversity, you better have a plan in place that most people are going to agree upon. Because if you don't, you're going to create the same chaos at home. Now, how long has it been or has that been going on? That, that we've been sort of dismantling the traditional model of, of a two-parent home and children and all those things that otherwise people historically kind of call the American dream or whatever because of our culture. Uh, I'm an American, United States of America. The idea, though, that you go changing that and you do it radically and you do it with this sort of extreme shift from one side to the other polarized sort of presentation you are going to have problems. That ship does not turn on a dime. It takes a wide berth to get things changed. Now, if we're going to change, then at least let's be obedient to a process, obliged to a process of change. If we're measuring the facts and the outcomes and we say, well, that's probably not adaptive, then let's incorporate what we do believe is the right correction. And then spend a moment or two reevaluating it. Actually, you should spend more than a moment to. You should have studies that replicate it before you go out and start making social policies or, or laws just based on what you want to do. Because why? Because it didn't work for you. And, and maybe it, it's flawed. We just need to be bound to empiricism. To treat substance abuse, to really avoid substance abuse, that would solve all the problems too. Primary, secondary, and tertiary care. Prevention, primary care. Measure it out. Experience the consequences if you have to, if you're going to, if you're inclined to take the risk. But learn from them. Don't go into denial. Don't run away from your problems. Don't push your problems off on somebody else. Don't say, well, you have to take care of these 
it's not up to me. I'm just going to go do my thing. That won't work. It destroys, again, the whole system systemically. So if we did that, we'd probably prevent a lot of the problems that we see with substance abuse and chemical dependence. And with that, uh, what we also find is most of those folks do statistically come from really chaotic and more than that, abusive and more than that, traumatizing homes. It's not working. It's not working. You can treat the symptom, in this case, substance-related and addictive disorders, but if you don't treat the true cause of it, it's not going to fix itself. You can try to legislate that and say, don't do it, but that does not work. You can put people in jail. You can try punishment. That does not work. You can be libertarian to the extreme and say everything is legal. That does not work. What works is we have to be bound to two basic premises. One is empiricism as part of the process of trying to figure out what is, second, second point, adaptive. Is it more life? Is it life, more life, and good life, or is it death? And it may take generations to see it, but somebody ought to be wise enough. Really, that's what empiricism is supposedly good for. Not only tells you what is, what was, establishes that, validates that. But if it's reliable, it has some predictive value. You should be able to extend that in in a decision-making sort of context. Well, if, I, if this is what's caused where I am now, if I make an alteration, does that mean that predictively, if I'm solid at this moment, I'm still stepping out a bit in faith, I have to have some courage, but if I use my head and use all of this processing that's humanly available to me, all the great cognitive skills, if I'm allowed to or if I do grow up and allow myself to operate as an adult in this world, I can make good decisions about the future. And an obvious one is, if I've had trouble with this drug before, I should never use it again. But that's not how it works, because again, 85% of folks relapse in the first year, and not all of that is because of physiological tolerance. Once you clear the first four months, the cravings dissipate four to six months. After uh, stopping the substance, going through withdrawal, most of the cravings dissipate. The body still adjusts, takes a long time for the body to get back to normal, physiologically. But the psychological is broken. All the malfunction, dysfunction psychologically lends to one's making a stupid decision to do it again. And how many times does it take? I don't know. There's statistics out there. They're just guesses. It takes a lot. How many times do you have to get hurt before you realize that it takes a lot? And then equally so, there's, again, a staggering, I'll use that word, number of individuals who never learn and eventually end up destroying themselves. Number six, continued opioid use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of opiates. Again, you get in trouble. You get in trouble with other people. You have social chaos. The family breaks down. Things don't work. 
You get a divided country. Half the people believe in rules. Other half believe the answer is no rules. You have to find how both of those work together, and they do. You just have to be cooperative. And you can't just go from one extreme to the other. That's where dichotomy is evil, if there is such a thing as that, is that when we, even if we presuppose it premised upon some fact, go to an extreme. We don't need to go to extremes. We should be more tempered than that. Adults should be more considerate. Again, we have all this great mental faculty. Why don't we use it? And that is part of not only the problem, as with disorder, misuse, but it's also part of the treatment. Now, I'm flavoring all of this with the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual criterion. They are atheoretical, by the way. I should say that uh, rightfully so. They take no uh, interest in theory, probably because it'd be a losing proposition. And, and the only reason they're so widely accepted, this, this manual is w- widely accepted, is because it doesn't imply theory, opinion. But I'm still trying to base all of my opinion that I'm sharing, at least my perspective, not only on my experiences treating, but all my education, what I have learned, and see it in the broadest of contexts, not just related to substance related or addictive disorders, but more so developmental disorders, difficulties with individuals growing up, our societal breakdown, the chaos, the craziness that comes from disorder. Important social, occupational, number seven, or relational activities are given up or reduced because of opiate use. You can't do them because you're intoxicated. You can't do them because you're not functioning properly. It is global. You put that thing in your body, that substance, and it's going to affect everything in your body. And it takes everything in our body to be adaptive, at least, again, to the extent that we have been successful. Now, there are certainly individuals who are born with less than others, physiologically, psychologically, cognitively, and again, everything is set upon, all the psychology is set upon the the organic or the physical. But there's no excuse for being ignorant. And even those individuals that may have limitations, we can accept that that's all they're going to be able to really understand. But there's plenty of us who have quite full capacity or capability to understand life in these terms that we've discussed today. If we don't choose to operate in them, we can't claim innocence. We're ignorant. And especially if we've been taught, part of the reason I'm doing the podcast, sharing information, communicating a perspective, trying to assist, bringing some word to some form so people can at least hear it, But if anything that I'm saying, besides being opinion, is, again, as I've tried to make it, factually sound, if it's been given to you and you choose not to do it, you're also ignorant. You're not only ignorant in the sense that you don't want to learn it, you don't know it, or vice versa. You don't know it and you don't want to learn it. That is not an answer. That is not empiricism. That's sticking your head in the sand, as they used to say. Ostrich in the sand. 
So, we're not done. I've got a few more criteria. But for today's podcast, I'm going to end on that. Uh, we'll go back and do a little bit more of a review. We may quickly pick up the, the first, I think I've gotten to number uh, seven. We'll go pick up the, the previous seven, next podcast, and then kind of go from there forward. Again, my message would be, not only do you think you are, but if you think you might be and you've actually tuned into the podcast and perchance you just wasn't luck today, random, you did follow me from number one to now episode two. And let's say at this point, you have enough interest to be anticipating episode three or would want to go to it. The idea is that you probably have something that's going on. Maybe not you, but somebody you know. So if I can share this with you, and even if you should choose to go seek professional care and help on your own, which I would highly recommend in all manner of way and circumstance, at least I'm laying a foundation for why you might need it. And along the way, we're not only talking about the particulars of substance misuse or disorder, and and word is not going to just be about addictions. Uh, We're going to get into all matter of pathology, for lack of a better way of saying it, over all these episodes. But as this all unfolds, the hope is we lay down a foundation of knowledge. We encourage folks to no longer remain in ignorance. And if you should be in denial, should happen to be in some form of denial, self or even looking at others, which would make you codependent, an enabler, uh, that kind of thinking and way of going about it allows the person that you say you care about that has the real problem to continue not only to have the problem but get worse. Hopefully, this will help you get past it and get to a point where you can be courageous. If we're empirical on the program, if I'm having sound arguments with you, if I'm encouraging you to think about these things independent of even me, or to go out and get additional information to use to make better decisions, you are going to be more faithful and true to your empiricism. That part of you that is true to truth itself and will identify reality and will see it in such a way that you can construct the most adaptive paradigm possible on how to get through life. And not only get through life, but have a good life more life, better life, and then make all those around you help to contribute. You can't make anybody do anything they don't want to do, but contribute to others around you, getting better, having a better life themselves. So if I've intrigued you enough, if I've uh, presented the invitation to return in such a way that you might be considerate of that, again, I just want to thank you for listening today and invite you back to our next podcast. Again, you're listening to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Thanks.